Good morning, everybody. My name is Keith Gove, and I get to uh, I get to finish up chapter 15 in First Corinthians today, and. Uh, I am, I am excited. I'm glad if you are visiting with us, thank you for, for coming. We're glad that you're here. If you've been around here for a long time, we're, I mean, sort of glad. We're still kind of glad <laughs> that you're still here. No, no, we're glad that you're here. We, uh, we're just, as John said this morning, he set a great tone. Man, God has been good to us. Man, he has been good to us. So uh, today is the Super Bowl. Everybody know? Uh, I, 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 I'm not sure, Rob, that, that the, you got the right memo of the teams, you know, but, but the spirit was there. The idea was right. <laughs> now, uh, if you're willing, um, anyone willing to, to shout out or raise a hand that they're going to cheer for the Cincinnati Bengals? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. All right. I thought it would be. I thought it would be dead silent. I thought. It, I thought there would be crickets. Like. Yeah, the yeah. There you go. There you go. I. I have no. Uh, how do. How do they say it? No dog in the fight. No horse in the ring. You know. Whatever. I don't care. <laughs> I, I don't care who wins. I hope it's a good game. That's all I care about. Uh, we usually will pick teams. You know, in our family. Who are you going to root for? Who are you going to root for? And then. You know, we can attack each other throughout the game, you know, and that's the, that's the fun. I used to look forward to all the commercials, you know. For a while, it was like every ad agency, you know, tried to put out their best commercials during the Super Bowl. I, either, either not so much or their best ads are not as good as they used to be. Because uh, then, you know, because now I don't notice so much. And they're showing them all during the Olympics. So, you know, I've already seen all the Walter the Cat commercials that I need to see. You know, I've, I, you know, the, the, the newness has worn off. But today is all about victory. So, I need, I need to hear from you this morning how you will cheer when your team, whichever team it is, whether it's the Bengals, whether it's the Rams, whether it's the commercials, whether it's the guacamole, whatever you're going to cheer for, I need to hear from you how you're going to cheer today when, when things go well. Let me hear it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's what I need to hear. That's what I need to hear. Because my hope, my hope sincerely is that we would have a great time watching the game. A great, great time. Um, but my hope is this morning, God would get more of our praise, more of our vocal cords, more of our hearts, more of our thanks than, than the football game. I, yes, I want to enjoy the game. I want to have fun. It's an awesome thing. Um, so I just, I just wonder about stuff. My brain, I don't know why, like dumb stuff. So I'm like, why is it called the Super Bowl? There's a bowling. The championship of bowling should be called the Super Bowl. Why would we call it the Super Bowl? It's football. Yes, that's right. You're totally right, Dave. So I looked it up. I was like, well, I'm going to find out. It's called the Super Bowl because the Rose Bowl, the guy who built the Rose Bowl Stadium, he liked the stadium at Yale. And for some reason, when I say Yale, I put like four different vowels in there. I can't just say Yale. I got to say Yale. I don't know why. But anyway, so the stadium at Yale is called the Yale Bowl. 
The guy who built the Rose Bowl Stadium liked that stadium so much, he built his and called it, he was a part of the Tournament of Roses. He called it the Rose Bowl Stadium. And so that was 1923, and then the Cotton Bowl Stadium in Dallas and all the other bowls. It was named, they're called Bowl because that's the shape of the stadium. And so that was why it was called the Rose Bowl game, because it was played at the Rose Bowl, the big bowl. The Super Bowl is not tied to a stadium, though, but the word had been in use for like four decades for the championship of that, you know, season. And so they just stole the word and made it their own thing. Has nothing to do with bowling. But you already knew, and really it has nothing to do with anything except that my curiosity couldn't rest. I had to know, why on earth is it called the Super Bowl? So now you know. We are moving on to a different and altogether better victory than whatever victory will happen today. Somebody's going to win today the Super Bowl, just so you know. Somebody's going to win. They will not let it end in a tie. Somebody's going to win. We are talking today Paul is talking at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 about an even better, bigger, more awesomer victory than whatever is going to happen this afternoon. An unfading victory. Now, don't answer this out loud because I know somebody is going to actually know the answer to this. But who, who won the Super Bowl six years ago? You know, what were the teams? Who was the MVP? Again, don't answer. I know somebody's going to know. But the idea is the Super Bowl, the victory, whoever the MVP is, whoever catches the winning touchdown, we're going to forget. Tomorrow, we're going to go to work. We're going to go about our lives. We're not going to care. Next week, we're not going to care. This victory we're talking about today is eternal, is unfading. And uh, Paul is pointing us to it so that we will allow that and the anticipation of that unfading victory to change and to shape the way we live every day. So let's read through the text and uh, see what Paul has to say for us. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak through your word this morning and help that coming day, that coming victory to change the way that we live today? Lord, would you, by your spirit, reveal your truth to us for our benefit, for our joy, for our renewed purpose and vision today and tomorrow and for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right. So now we're going to break through, break down all these different pieces as we go through. First, he spends the first few verses talking about Jesus' total everlasting victory. That one day which began at the cross and is going to get culminated when Jesus returns, when death is finally and forever defeated. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Todd talked about this last week. Our, our bodies are not fit for heaven, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Heaven is too big too grandiose for these bodies that break and that decay and that die. We need new bodies. And when that day comes, the perishable will put on imperishable. Our mortal bodies, these bodies aren't fit for heaven. We shall not all sleep. I tell you a mystery. So remember last week, this is now our third week talking about resurrection. Last week, Paul said, uh, like a seed that you put into the ground, this body has to go into the ground and it's got to become this imperishable. It's got to grow. The seed has to die so that the plant can grow, all that stuff. He's telling us a mystery in that some, for some, that's not going to be the case. We shall not all die. There will be believers on the earth when Jesus returns who won't experience the same death that Paul experienced or that you and I might experience. When Jesus comes, some will be alive in that moment, but their bodies will still be changed. He says, we shall not all sleep, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So our mortal bodies have to change. They're not fit for heaven. And all who trust Christ will be changed. They will put on that imperishable body. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on the immortality. These dying bodies will be made indestructible and eternal. I know Todd talks about his long hair and his basketball shorty shorts and all the rest. But what matters to me is these bodies are going to be indestructible. These bodies are going to be made to last forever, made to be able to enjoy all that heaven has to offer. Everything, all the goodness, all the glory, all that it means to be in the immediate presence of the creator of the universe these new bodies will be fit to be in that presence of God forever. To enjoy as good as creation is now. Heaven is all of that good stuff, but perfected, without taint, without stain. And we need bodies that can handle that, can enjoy that, can celebrate that forever. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then will come to pass the saying that is written. And Paul puts together two different passages, one from Hosea and one from Isaiah. And he puts together this just celebrative, just uh, chant. 
um, like a victory song. Then it will come to pass, the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is the, the culmination of this whole section on resurrection. Death, you have nothing on us anymore because of what Jesus accomplished. So he started saying at the beginning of the section of resurrection that death would be the last enemy to be defeated. So this victory we're talking about that Jesus has accomplished in conquering death is not only just the conquering of death, it's that death is the last enemy, the final enemy. When this enemy is dead, all the others are gone as well. And then we can truly, genuinely, eternally celebrate. In verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, you might wonder, why is death an enemy if, you know, when we die, we're just going to heaven, we're just going to be in the immediate presence of God? Why, why, would, why is death still called an enemy in the New Testament? Why shouldn't it, shouldn't it be this kind of welcome thing that we're looking forward to? But still, all the writers of the New Testament say this, that death is still an enemy. And now these are just a few of the ideas as to why. Death fundamentally in, in its nature is opposed to life. And Jesus said, I've come that you would have life, that you'd have it abundant. And death is opposed. The decay, the death, everything that has come through sin entering the world is opposed to life and opposed to what God intended in, cre in creation. Second, it enters creation because of sin. Death owes its, its existence to our sin. It owes its presence in our world to our sin. And so because of that, it is opposed. It is an enemy. It taints all of creation's enjoyments. God created these amazing things for us to enjoy, but for every one of them, we understand, ah, but that thing is going to die. That thing is going to fade. Or I'm going to die, and I'm not going to be able to enjoy it to its fullest. It's an enemy because it robs us of the joy that God intended for these good things that he created. The writer of Hebrews says that humanity lives lifelong enslaved to the fear of death. Now, I hope that that's not the case for, for believers, I hope that we don't live under the same kind of fear that, uh, that those who don't have Christ live under. But still, there is this fear of the unknown, the pain, the ugliness of death. It is an enemy. And by its nature, it divides, it separates, it breaks up community, breaks up family, breaks up relationships. It is an enemy. And Christ has defeated it and will ultimately defeat it when he comes again. So let's take each of those and flip it on his head for a minute and just celebrate this goodness of God that is, has begun at Christ's death and will be culminated at his return. Our bodies will be made indestructible on that day and eternal. Life will be abundant, overflowing, and never-ending. Sin and temptation will be destroyed on that day when Christ returns. All creation's enjoyments perfected. 
Not one of them tainted by, oh, that's going to decay. Oh, that's going to die. Oh, that's going to go away. Oh, that's not going to last. Or I'm going to decay. I'm not going to last. I'm not going to be able to enjoy it. Every one of them perfected and eternal. Fear is cast out. Fear is gone. Fear is destroyed. And fellowship, relationships, community are eternal. Is that a good day? Is that a good thing? Amen. That is going to be an amazing thing, an amazing day, worth way more cheering than the Rams, worth way more cheering than the Bengals or the Dolphins, whoever happens to be playing. <laughs> but Paul takes us to this, to this height. Where is your death? Where is your sting, O death? Where is your victory? And he brings it right back to a sobering thought for these Corinthians. Where is your sting? Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? And then he says, the sting, I'll tell you where the sting is. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Right from this celebration pulling from the prophets, pulling from, from all kinds of history of what is to come. People looking forward to the day when God will make everything right. He says, but the sting of death is sin. The sting of death leads to the judgment seat of God. For that sin that is not taken by Christ separates us from God forever. The sting of death, according to Paul, is not just that we die, but that if we die with sin still ruling our hearts, we're separated forever from the God who created us, who loves us. That's the sting. And he's looking at the Corinthians. If we look back on this letter you know, they're dividing over who brought them to faith. They're dividing over who's eating what kind of meat in the marketplace. They're dividing over uh, how they celebrate the Lord's Supper. They're dividing over who got the spiritual gifts and which ones they got and which ones they didn't get. They're taking each other to court. They're not loving each other. He spends a whole chapter just talking about what love is because you guys obviously don't know. He tells them the sting of death is sin so that they might realize, wow, I don't want that. I don't want sin ruling my heart. I don't want that sting of death to be true of me. And then he says, the law is the power of sin. The law contains God's judgment upon sin. The law is where God says, hey, I've set up this perfect standard of living for you guys, this perfect standard of righteousness. Live this way and you will be good. But none of us can meet that standard. None of us can live that. And so he says, if you break even one of these laws, you stand under its curse and under the, the death that comes with the law. So sin is the sting of death. The law gives it its power because we have all broken 
that law, and we all stand under its curse. Even more than that, Paul in Romans 7 says the law does something else. Not only does it convict us of right and wrong and what we've done, but it creates in us. He said, you know, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet unless the law told me what coveting was. But then my sin in me hears that I'm not supposed to covet, and then I covet all the more because I know I'm not supposed to. It, our sin takes what is good from God and uses it for evil to make more sin in our life. So the sin is the sting of death. The law is its power in us, working against us. And Paul is looking at the lives of the folks in Corinth and saying, I am afraid, I am worried that sin is ruling your hearts still and not Jesus. And so he wants them to know that this victory that Jesus has won is amazing. But if sin is still ruling, you will miss this victory. This victory will not be your victory because you still stand under God's judgment. And he doesn't want that. So immediately he points them to the solution. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the answer. Here's the solution. I'm going to give you the pop quiz question, and right after that, I'm going to give you the answer. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Now, the Rams, if they win, the Bengals, if they win, they're going to earn their victory. They're going to work hard. They have worked hard. Our victory comes in the hard work Jesus has done, not in the hard work we do. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, through what Jesus has done. So what do we do? What is Paul encouraging the Corinthians to do? He's encouraging them to cling to Jesus, to stick to Jesus, to hang on to Jesus, to grab his leg like a little kid and just make him drag you across the room. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to cling like our life depends on it. Because it does. It absolutely does. So we cling to Jesus. Now, if you remember back at the beginning of Corinthians, way, 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 way back at the beginning, there was this piece of positivity that Paul gave them before he launched into all the things that they are getting wrong. Do you remember that part? The very beginning, chapter one? I just want to give you uh, a little reminder of it because it points over and over and over again to Jesus. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus. They received God's grace in Jesus. And in every way, you were enriched in Jesus. All that you have, all the good things have come from your connection, your association with Jesus. 
You were enriched in him in speech and in knowledge, even as the testimony about Jesus was confirmed among you. God gave you gifts. God showed you miraculous things. God's done all this stuff so that you would see Christ's spirit at work in you, so that you would not be lacking in any gift from Christ, from his spirit, as you wait for Jesus. So he's the one who gave you grace. He's the one who enriched you. He's the one who has given you every gift so that you would be lacking in nothing. He's the one that you're waiting to return who will sustain you to the end. He's the one who keeps you and protects you and guards you until that last day when death is ultimately destroyed forever. So he's the one who gave us the grace. He's the one who enriched us. He's the one who has given us grace. He's the one we're waiting for. And he is the one who is sustaining us even now for that day when his victory is complete. And not only sustaining us, but sustaining us guiltless. Sustaining us not under the guilt of the law. Not under, not according to our actions. Not according to our behavior. Not according to our sin. But sustaining us guiltless according to his righteousness. And God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ our Lord. All these things, everything that we've been given, Paul tells them at the very beginning, it all comes from Jesus. We have got to cling to Jesus because every good thing, everything that we have to celebrate now and to look forward to in the future comes from Jesus and depends on his victory. Through him we receive grace. In him we are enriched and lack nothing. We wait for his return, and by him we are sustained guiltless, made guiltless and sustained guiltless until the last day. Thanks be to God who gives us, amen, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. So I said at the beginning, I don't know what your posture is or what your expression is. You guys know I have a very different expression than Todd has, right? I, I, I don't, I, I can skip. I just tend not to skip. Um, but that doesn't mean that the, the, the feelings are, are all that, you know, uh, all that different. We just express them differently. And I understand that that's true of you guys too. The feelings may be all the same, but we may act them out. Uh, we may demonstrate them in different ways, right? So I'm not going to prescribe anything for you. You can celebrate. You can praise in the way that is comfortable for you, okay? But you already showed me what, how you're going to praise, how you're going to worship, how you're going to celebrate in the Super Bowl when your team does well, right? You already showed me. And you already showed me a, a volume level that I, you know, will come to expect from you, okay? So, we're going to go through some first downs here, spiritually speaking. We're going to go through some things that deserve our praise. We're going to go through some truths that deserve our celebration and our worship. Thanks be to God. So in whatever way you praise, 
whatever way you worship, if you want to stand, you want to sit, whatever, doesn't matter. But I want us to praise. So in Genesis, right after, right after humanity sins, right after death enters and disease and illness and corruption and decay enter creation because of what the serpent had done in tempting Adam and Eve, right after the fall of humanity, right after we've messed it up, we've taken the best gift we could have imagined and we've, we've dropped it on the floor and broken it. Right after that, God says, I will send one whose heel will crush the serpent's head. Does anybody know who that is? Who's going to do that? Jesus is going to do that. So in the books of the law, they establish a perfect standard, a perfect standard for righteousness, a perfect standard for living. And there is one who's the embodiment of that standard, who's the fulfillment of that standard, who lived it perfectly, met all its requirements, and ended the curse that it contained for us. Anybody know who did that? Thank you. Jesus did that. He did that for you. He did that for us. So the next books, Joshua, Judges, the Kings, the Chronicles, we call them the history books. The people of Israel are looking for a perfect king, a righteous king for God's people, a perfect leader to lead them, to prepare a land for them, and to beat back every enemy of their well-being. And every time they go through a king, every time they go through a judge, not him, not her, not the guy, not the king, not perfect, can't be it, didn't do it, until one. Anybody know who it was? Jesus. Everyone failed except Jesus, that perfect king that they've been looking for for centuries. In the wisdom books, they, they personify wisdom that goes beyond human wisdom and puts to shame the wisdom of the worldly wise. Anybody know who is that personification of wisdom? You're, you're getting tired. You're getting tired. Your mortal bodies, I'm going to blame it on you, not on me. Your mortal bodies are unable to sustain praise throughout the prophets. The end of the Old Testament from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, all the lesser prophets, the major prophets, all of them are pointing to the day when God would send a redeemer, a restorer, a shepherd of God's people, a savior. He never came in their lifetime. You know who it is? It's Jesus. Thank you. Now, we haven't even got to the New Testament yet. That's just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the writers tell us that Jesus revoked Satan's ownership over us. We were owned. We were under his power, under his control, under his dominion before Christ won the victory for us. We were slaves to sin, slaves to our passion, and Jesus is the one who rescued us. He spans the separation that was caused by sin and restores us to God, restores us in right relationship, and not just restored to a relationship, but adopts us as sons 
and daughters. Not just guilty under the, not guilty of the curse, but a son and a daughter. He removes the scales from our eyes, heals our blindness so that we can see the goodness of God that we couldn't see before. Adam and Eve could not see, chose not to see how good God had been to them. They wanted to do it their own way. They wanted to be in charge of themselves. And every person since then, I'll do it my own way. Unable to see God's goodness, unable to see what he had done for us. And Christ opens our eyes so that we can respond. So that we can know it and experience God's goodness. Jesus gets rid of the guilt of sin, destroys it. Not just removes it, destroys it. We don't need to live under that guilt anymore. Amen. He's won that victory. And here's the touchdown. Here is the big finish that Paul leads the entire chapter to this finish. He rose from the dead, proving that everything he had said was true. All that he had been pointing to, all that he had talked about, all that he had taught, he proves that it was true by raising from the dead, showing us his victory and showing us our victory, the firstborn from among the dead, and that this will be forever. Amen. 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 So here's what he tells us to do. Because of this, because there is no greater victory, therefore, the whole time he's been telling them, you're not loving each other, you're not loving each other, you're not loving each other. Because this victory is so good, he just, he gives them three things to, to hang on to. Because we all need, you know, it's fine to say cling to Jesus, but how do I do that? What do I do? He says we love people unceasingly, unwaveringly, consistently. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So we love people. Because we have been loved by Christ. We don't stop pointing people to Jesus. We keep clinging to Jesus and we keep pointing people to Jesus. And we trust that God will use even our efforts. As feeble as they may be, God will use our efforts. So I want you to stand with me. And we're going to end with singing to this Jesus who we love. We're going to end in singing and declaring our love for Jesus. I don't want this to be a formality. I don't want this to be a like, oh, yeah, I know that song. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, I know those words. I want this to be our declaration. I want this to be our 
cheering at the touchdown. I want this to be our cheering at the interception. I want this to be our cheering when the game is done, the clock goes down to zero, and our team wins. Our celebration of this God who has done so much on our behalf, and we just get to celebrate his victory. Lord, would you be in our praise today? Would you help us to sing from our heart our love for you, genuinely, truly, heartfelt, our praise for your glory, Lord? 